Amen. Well, that is our, our desire, is that, Lord, that you would be on the throne of our lives. Father, without you, we can do nothing. We are truly desperate for you. We pray as we go to the Word right now that you would be our teacher. We thank you, Lord, that it's the living, breathing Word of God. It's not an old, antiquated book, but, Lord, you desire to minister to every single heart that's here tonight. We're all here, Father, by divine appointment. Nobody's here by chance. And, Lord, I just ask, Father God, again, that you would be our teacher in the power of your Spirit. So we ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you one. And if you want to, you can absolutely take it home as our gift to you. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 11. We continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. Or Old Testament, excuse me. New Testament on uh, Sundays. We'll be in Acts 22 on Sunday. I want to encourage you guys, read ahead before you come. I really believe you get a lot more out of the text when you read it before you've come. It's a blessing. We're going to take a look now at Numbers chapter 11. And as we've been talking about Numbers in the Old Testament, it's been a great book. I've been blessed by it. And even though I've been blessed to be a pastor for almost 17 years now, I'm blessed because I've never taught through Numbers before. And it's been really great for me to really study it and, and just see what God has in it. But as we've seen so far, just by quick review, in Genesis we saw creation. Man was, God, was create, God created man in His image, and man fell away from God because man chose to sin. In Exodus, they were in bondage. In Egypt, a picture of us being in bondage to our sin. And then God delivered them out of bondage. Remember, the, the plague that delivered them out of bondage was Passover. And remember, the angel of death passed over. Passover is a perfect picture of what? Of the cross. Because through the je- shed blood of Jesus Christ, we were delivered out of bondage to sin. And that's the only way we could be delivered. All the other plagues did not deliver them. It was not until the blood came. And remember the blood was put on the top, at the feet, both where the hands, the same four places where Jesus bled from. And again, only through that may we be delivered. We got to Leviticus and we saw the holiness of God and Him establishing the uh, sacrificial system. So you get to Numbers and people don't study Numbers very often. I think people are scared away by the title as I've said before. But a better title for Numbers would be In the Wilderness, because it's the time of the children of Israel traveling in the wilderness from the place where they were delivered out of bondage. They camped at Mount Sinai for about a year, and then they were headed to the land of promise. We've talked repeatedly about how that's a picture of our life. We've been delivered out of bondage. We're new creations in Christ. They were encamped in what shape? A cross. Remember, they were encamped in a cross. When God the Father looked down, He saw a cross. They're encamped in a cross. They were headed to the land of promise. And as they were headed to that land of promise, we're going to see that they make some detours and they blow it. And that's what we're going to look at tonight as we begin to see them fall into rebellion. But God had numbered the people. The tabernacle had been constructed. God's glory was in their midst. They're headed to the land of promise. But we're going to see that they get off track. Last week we saw God's call for them to move. And we talked about how it's one thing to say that you'll serve God with your whole heart. And it's another thing... It's another thing to say, yeah, when the, when the trumpet blows, I'm going to move. When the, when the cloud moves, I'll go. When God says go, I'll go. It's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to do it. And a lot of people say, oh yeah, man, I'm sold out for God until God asks them to do something. And then, well, wait a minute. I, you know, it's one thing to say, I know God will provide when there's a bunch of money in the bank. It's another thing to trust God when you just lost your job. It's one thing to say that I know that God's in control when your whole family is healthy. And it's yet another thing to say that when someone in your family has a terminal illness. It's one thing to say that, that you believe God with your whole heart while you're sitting in church. And at church, it's yet another thing to proclaim Him at work or at school or in your neighborhood. 
And so we're going to see here that God has a calling on the children of Israel, and He desires that they would move with Him. They're encamped in the cross. And when were they supposed to move? What was it that moved that they followed? Who remembers? The cloud or the pillar of fire. The cloud was at the center of the tabernacle, right? Over the Ark of the Covenant. The cloud was a picture of what? What was it? Guys. I know it's late in the day, but come on now. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the cloud a picture of? Oh, there you go. All right. Very good, guys. You're catching on. All right. Now, the Holy Spirit, as the cloud would move, they would follow the cloud wherever it went. But remember last week that there was a confirmation that when the cloud moved, there was something else that had to happen. Something else that got their attention that made them move. What was it? The trumpet was blown. Remember that? Now, the trumpet was a picture of God's Word. And the reason for that is that the Holy Spirit leads us, but it's confirmed by the Word of God. You know, people will say things like, well, the Holy Spirit told me, or God told me, or the Spirit's leading me. And sometimes they come up with some of those wacky stuff you ever heard in your life. The reality is that if the Holy Spirit is leading you, it will be confirmed in God's Word. And the cloud would move, and so what that did was it made the children of Israel, when they woke up in the morning, the first place they looked is they looked above the tabernacle to make sure the cloud was still there. They looked to make sure that fire was there, because if it moved, it was time to pack up and go. And sometimes they might be there for a day, a week, or a month, and sometimes a year, and they always had to be ready and looking up. And you know, shouldn't we start our day that way? Should we wake up in the morning looking up? Amen? First thing we ought to be thinking about is the Lord. Yes, Lord. First words out of our mouth. Too often we get up and we make our coffee and we get our, you know, we run out the door and we're late for the appointment and, and you know, and then guy cuts us off and we're, you know, and we're like that, you know, and we're like, man, my walk's really suffering. Haven't spent any time with the Lord today. I'm not looking up. So not only did they need to look up, but they need to have their ears open too. They had their, their eyes open for the cloud, but their ears open for the trumpet. They had to be listening. So not only do we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, but we need to be people who've got our eyes open to God's Word. We need to read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? We need to spend time in God's Word that He might minister to our hearts. And so that's where we come in the text tonight, is we're going to see that now they're being called to move. And they've been so blessed by God. God has given them so much. He's delivered them out of bondage. He's taken them out of the, the, this wretched place that had been for 400 years and answered a prayer. He brings them to Mount Sinai. How is He feeding them? How are they eating? Manna is falling from the sky. They've seen the plagues. They've seen the sea turn to blood. They've seen you know, the locusts. They've seen Passover. Then they crossed through the Red Sea, got to the other side of the Red Sea, and what happened to the Egyptian army? What happened? They're doing the dead man float, right? Right? What happened was the water swallowed them up and they all died. And they had this big, huge worship service on the other side of the Red Sea. You know, man, praise God, we've been delivered, right? They get to Mount Sinai and now God's been blessing them. And now the tabernacle's there and the Spirit's in their presence. But watch these guys. They remind me a lot of me. Because watch what they do. It's amazing. Because these children of Israel, while they should be looking up, while they're while the Lord is leading them, while God has blessed them in so many ways, they're going to be easily distracted. So the title of the text tonight is Rebellion in the Camp. Rebellion in the Camp. We're going to see the rebellion and disobedience that's going to turn an 11-day journey into a 40-year death march. Do you know it's only 11 days? If you march straight from Mount Sinai to the land of promise, it takes 11 days. How many years are they in the wilderness? Forty. Why? Because they disobeyed God. You know, when we disobey God, we get off track. 
start going in the wrong direction, we're a train wreck, we don't know where we're going, and that's what happens to the children of Israel, and that rebellion is going to start in the text tonight. And we're going to see, first, the lies that our flesh tells us. Do you know that your flesh lies to you? Doesn't it? The Bible says that Satan is a liar. You know, he's a roaring lion seeking who may devour. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. But our flesh will lie to us. And our flesh will tell us, oh yeah, you need that. There's something you've got to have right there. And in the end, it leads to death. And we're going to see tonight four of those things. Lies that our flesh tells us. And then after we see the lies that our flesh tells us, we're also going to see God's promise to provide for those who are desperate for Him. And then God's judgment upon those who seek after their fleshly desires. So let's begin in verse 1. And we're first going to look at the rebellion in the camp and the lies that our flesh tell us, beginning with the people. Now the first lie that our flesh will tell us very often is that, here's what the flesh will tell you, you know better than God. You know better than God. What does He know? I mean, He's just the Alpha and the Omega created the universe, put the stars in the sky, but what does He know compared to you? You're 15, right? I mean, I used to tell that to my youth group. Hey, I'm 15. I got it all figured out, right? I mean, and so often we think we know better than God. We start telling God. You know, by the way, when I hear people pray and they're giving God instructions, what you're saying is, I know better than God. Hey, God, you know what you need to do? You need to come down here. Have you ever heard people pray like that? We don't, do we instruct God? Does God need my help? God's up there going, oh, thanks, Dave. I'm glad you pointed that out. I was in total, I was in total oh, man, you're just awesome, man. I, I, I'm going to, you know, no. We're crying out to Him. Prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. And so watch here, look at beginning in verse 1. Now remember, they're in the cross, they're under the cloud. When they were in Egypt, they were under smoke and heat, and it was torturous. And now they're under the cool cloud, and they're headed to the land of promise, and food's falling out of the sky every morning. Does it get any better than that? You get up out of your tent, and there's your food. Breakfast in bed, right? Your food's right there. You just get out, roll up. There's the manna. Oh, it's good, right? And by the way, manna, we're going to see, tasted like pastry, and it was good for you. I want that recipe. How about you, right? It tastes like pastry, and it's good for you. So now watch what happens, though. See, these guys should be excited. God's awesome. Look how they begin. Now, when the people complained, what? What do they got to complain about? Where were they just coming from? 400 years of bondage being beaten, right? And they start complaining. God's blessing them and they start complaining. How many of you have ever done that before? Raise your hand. Man, it's just like us, isn't it? And they complain. And look what it says here. Now the people complained and it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it and His anger was aroused. These guys are just starting out on their journey. God's delivered them from bondage. He's instructed them. He's performed miracles. He parted the Red Sea. He's given them manna. He's got a cloud above them. The trumpet's sounding. They're marching out and they're whining already. 11-day journey turns into a 40-year death march because these guys miss God. So sinful is the human heart that it's prone to forget God's blessings ignore God's promises, and find fault with God's providence. You know, God has done so much for them, and yet they're complaining. And this is nothing new for Israel. Remember what happened right after they got past the Red Sea? You were here during the Exodus study. They get right past the Red Sea, they have a huge worship service, and three days later, what do they start doing? Complaining. We don't have any water. That's exactly what happened. They started whining. Now, Again, they start murmuring against God. This is the same God that just brought you out of bondage. This is the same God that is leading you into the land of promise. And yet they began to murmur. In the NIV it says here that the people complained about their hardship. 
What kind of hardship could they have compared to where they just came from? They're going to the land of promise. They're under the cloud. They should be rejoicing in the Lord. And instead, they're murmuring because they have to walk. Walk. Right? They're at Mount Sinai for a year, and it was like, yeah, I could just sit right here. But the Lord said, I got something so much better for you. The land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. Dude, you're living in the desert. Let me bring you to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I'd have to walk for 11 days, man. I'm not into that. And that's what happens with these guys. They start whining three days into their walk. Man, I just can't have it. And they start complaining about the circumstances of life. And sadly, again, what happens in our lives is we start looking around at our circumstances and we imply that we know better than God by telling God what He needs to do. Having been in camp for an entire year, they became comfortable. And now they begin to complain, focused on their temporal struggles instead of the place where they're headed. Where were they headed? The land flowing with milk and honey. Where are you headed? Where are you headed? Heaven. Amen? You've been delivered from sin. You're headed to heaven. Right now we're in the the desert in a sense, but we're camped under the cloud. The Holy Spirit is with us, right? We're walking in the coolness of the cloud. We have the Holy Spirit upon us, and we're headed to the land of promise, and yet we too will look around and start complaining. You know, I'm going to share something with you that I I, I wrote it down. I go, no, I'm not going to share that. I just can't. I want to be transparent with my people, but not that transparent. But I'm going to share it with you, and my wife might not even know this. You know, we're... We're prone to complain. And as people, that's what we do a lot, isn't it? When I was in the 8th grade, this is sad. This is really sad. When I was in the 8th grade, they had a thing called, at the end of the year called the Hall of, Hall of Fame, right? You know how they have that in yearbooks, right? You have, you know, best smile, best sense of humor, most athletic, right? I was in the Hall of Fame. Guess what I won? Biggest complainer. It's true. I don't know if my dad knew that. In the eighth grade yearbook, I got biggest complainer. Now, they told me I had won, right? And I thought I won, and I came in second for best sense of humor, right? And my best friend won that. So I thought that's what I had won, right? And they said, oh, you won a hall, you know, it's going to be in the, I'm like, cool, all right on. And I go down there, and they're like, naming the stuff. Okay, best smile, you know, so-and-so get up here, best athlete. And then they're like, biggest complainer, Dave Johnson. And I'm like, what? So I started complaining, right? But one, <laughs> that ain't right. But one of my, I remember thinking back to junior high, one of my favorite statements was, that's not fair. How many of you ever say that? That's just not fair. And I was like that. I was pretty outspoken even then. And so like of the team, that ain't fair. You got all the good players in your team. And I was pretty, out, so I got biggest complainer. Now, I hope that in 27 years since junior high, I've, I've matured a little bit spiritually. And hopefully that's not who I am anymore. But that's our flesh as we complain about things. We look at things from a temporal perspective and we go, man, that ain't fair. That ain't right. I don't deserve that. I shouldn't be treated that way. These guys, we got to walk. They forgot. They were, they were just getting beaten, right? I'm thinking if someone's been whipping on me and I've been out in the sun making bricks and for generations and now I'm just under the cloud walking in the cool of the day and, and food's falling from the sky, I'd be pretty stoked. But what happens is we quickly forget what we've come from. And we forget where we're headed. We look at our circumstances and we start whining because they're not perfect. And that's what happens. And they fall into rebellion. And what's so sad, because again, complaining is looking at God and saying, God, I know better than you. God, I I don't trust your sovereignty. You're just not doing it right. Let me help you out here. 
And let me ask you a question. Do you like being around people who complain? Are they like fun to be around? So do you think it's pretty helpful for our testimony when we're whining? Nah, nah, yeah, cut the commissions again. Yeah, let the company get in the office, right? And you go around the office and people are like, oh man, your God's pretty awesome. Because what we do is we let our temporal stuff be more important than our relationship with the Lord and people see that. And all of a sudden your God's not so great anymore. We should have joy. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace. And it displeased the Lord. The fact that His incredible grace and mercy and deliverance was responded with ungratefulness, rebellion, and complaining. And look what it says in the second half of verse 1. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Does God like complaining? What do you think? Uh, no. They're murmuring. I just delivered you. Can you imagine God? He's up there and they're whining. I'm dropping food in your lap, guys. I took you out. I got a cloud over you to keep you. Cl- you have no idea where you're headed. Land flowing, milk and honey. It's going to be great. I'm directing you, man. All you got to do is follow. You don't have to do anything. And they're wah, wah, whining. And as they're whining, it burned in the heart of God and he sent fire down. Look at verse 2. Then the people cried out to Moses. Now they were murmuring against Moses till the fire came. Right? They're complaining and whining and moaning, and then the fire came, and they're like, hey, Mo. They're, they're, they're going, Moses, man, what happened? He brought us out, and then all of a sudden the fire came. Mo, pray. Pray. You know, sometimes, aren't, isn't that true? There's crisis Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? You're, you're, you, need, you cry out to God when things get really, really bad. You know, you're just on the cruise ship to heaven, and things get tough, and you're like, Lord, help! Right? They say there's no such thing as a drowning, Christ, uh, drowning atheist. Right? Someone's drowning and everyone's crying out to God, right? And so we see that we can have, fall in that trap in our lives that we're on that cruise ship and we only turn to God when things are difficult. And so we see that these very same people that were murmuring against God now turn to God's man and say to him, Hey, pray for us. Intercede on our behalf. Moses, you've got a great relationship with God. You've been up on the mountain with Him before. So God literally killed some of those. And those who died in verse 1, where were they located? Where does it say? On the outskirt of the camp, remember that those in ministry, where were they? Closest to the tabernacle. And those who were furthest away from God were those in the greatest danger of God's judgment. And since they're outside of His will, they're not walking with Him. And you know what? Judgment's going to come. And so we see here that those who are closest to the Lord, though the fire went through the camp, they survived. The fire will either purify us or bring judgment upon us. And so we see here that, that God's wrath was, was hot against them. And, it, and God's fire brought a holy fear. And then Moses prayed. Now I love this. It says, they cried out to Moses. And look what it says. And Moses prayed to the Lord. Now you've got to love Moses. Because Moses is a type or a picture of Christ. He's the deliverer, right? They were in bondage. Moses went back. God used him to deliver them out of bondage. Just as Jesus came to deliver us out of sin. And Moses shows great grace here. Because they've been murmuring against him. And we're going to see here in a minute that while he's a type of Christ, he's not Christ. He's going to blow it in a few verses here. He's going to have enough of these guys. He's not going to be able to take it anymore. But he's gracious here. Just as Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He goes and he prays for them. And look what it says. And it says, and he prayed and the fire was quenched. God responded with grace to the prayers of Moses. Again, a picture of that work on the cross. That God responded to what Jesus did for us. Verse 3. So he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Taborah means burning. 
And so they would name cities and build memorials, so every time anybody went through there, it would be a reminder to them of what had happened in that place. So they were marching through, they named that place Taborah, which means burning, and it was a reminder of what happens when people rebel against God and God's righteous judgment comes against them. When we complain about our circumstances, we portray God as uncaring, we portray Him as unjust, and we say we know better than God. Now, verses 4 through 9, the second lie the flesh tells us, along with, I know better than God, the second thing is, is that the things of the world are better than the things of God. Have you ever heard that before? Man, when, before I got saved, I used to have a lot of fun. Dude, ever since you got saved, you can't have any fun anymore. Right? It's a bummer being a Christian. You've got to wear a black robe and with a wheelbarrow full of rules, just walk around, be really bored, hit yourself in the face with a board every three steps, and just suffer. But you get to go to heaven at the end, right? And that's how people view Christianity sometimes. It's this big bummer with heaven at the end. And the enemy will always tell you, you're missing out. Oh, being a Christian, dude, you're going to miss out on all the fun. You can't go out and party with your friends anymore, man. You know what? Why is it we remember the party, but we forget all the hangovers? Amen? People remember, we have a selective memory, we're going to see that here in a minute. Now it says here, look at verse 4. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? Now, the mixed multitude, the word there in Hebrew means rabble or riffraff. These are the people that accompanied the Jews out of Egypt. When the Jews left Egypt, you know there were some non-Jews, non-Israelites that followed them. Some of them may have been slaves and saw this as a chance to get away, right? They're burying all their dead from Passover. Let's get out of here with them. May have been some that just maybe even were sincere in their heart and they went with them, but they saw it as a way of escape. But this mixed multitude did not camp inside the cross. They were outside of the camp, but they traveled with them. And you know what? The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals, right? And you start hanging out with the world, you're not going to get godly counsel. And look what the world says. The world starts telling them about craving. It says, The mixed multitude were among them yielded to the intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? These guys have left Egypt, but now they're going to start talking about Egypt. This mixed multitude is going to start hearkening back to the time when they had this food to eat. You know, when Jesus was on the earth, He warned the church about the par- in the parable of the tares about the wheat and the tares. And do you know that Satan is a, is a great imitator? And what he will do is he will, where God raises up children to himself, Satan will raise up imitators. And what happens is, is as they're traveling through, there are those there that are not of God. And their influence is going to be negative on them. Hey, if you become like you, who you hang out with, guys, I don't care who you are, look around who you're hanging out with, you're going to become like them. And bad company corrupts good morals. And so as they're marching through, you've got these guys who start, who are, again, tools of the enemy within the camp. I believe the greatest harm to the church today doesn't come from the enemy outside. We know who that is. It comes from compromise from the inside. Is there compromise in the church today? What's the answer? Are there churches that deny the virgin birth? That do not believe that Jesus Christ is deity? That do not believe that He rose from the dead? That believe that there are other paths to God? that have put forward some other agenda other than Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. You can get there through Buddha. You can get there through you know, being a Hare Krishna. You can get there through being a... No, you can't. Jesus Christ is the only way. And they look at people like that and say, man, you're being narrow. They deny the word. They say, oh, well, some of the Bible's from God. Some of the Bible's not from God. As soon as you say that, you're a heretic. 
and you're a blasphemer, and you're denying the Jesus Christ of the Bible, period. Either you believe this is the Word of God or you don't. Amen? This isn't a pick and choose multiple choice. I'll take that chapter. I don't like that one. Right? Sometimes in counseling, people go, well, I don't really like that verse. I don't think I believe that one. Well, either you believe them all or you don't believe any. Amen? And it's a, there's an attack, and that's what's happening right inside the camp, just like right in the church today, there are those who are attacking the truth. And these guys come along, and they're instigators for the enemy, promoting something other than God's perfect desire. So these guys are, are starting to whine. Look at verse 5. We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now the whole, our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. All we've got is this bread that God's given us from heaven. We don't have anything. That's all we've got is just God's gift to us. We don't have anything else. And I remember the melons and the leeks and the onions and the cucumbers. And again, remembering the things of the world being better than what God has given us. Longing for the world. Again, a selective memory. Don't you always remember the good things from the past and forget the bad? You look back at old relationships. I know people like this. They were dating somebody for a long time, then they broke up, and then, and then they go, I don't know why. And they go back, and then after about a week, they go, oh, now I know why. Now I know why I left, right? They, they remember, oh, they're romantic, you know. And then they get back, and oh, oh, yeah, now I remember. And that's what happens. Is we have this selective memory of the things of the world. We remember, oh, that was great. That was about, and we forget the hangover. We forget the struggles and the trials. We remember, you know, that the Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season, right? And it is. But guess what? In the end, is death. And it's going to bite you. And it has consequences every single time. And too often we want to, you know, oh man, I remember, you know, that selective memory that we have. Boy, those were the good old days. Boy, it was great being back in Egypt. What? What was happening to them in Egypt? They were getting beaten. They were getting whipped. They were, they were slaves in Egypt. They're walking around in shackles, getting whipped every day, making bricks in 100 degree weather. I've never been to Egypt, but I hear it's not cold there. Right? They're in the heat of the day being beaten every day, and they're thinking about the melons. I'm thinking melons wouldn't be that high on my priority list if I get away from the beatings. How about you? Amen? I mean, if I gave you a melon, would you go for 40 lashes for a melon? That's not like a good trade to you. That's not a good trade to me. I don't understand this. But again, it's that selective memory. Oh, I remember the leeks and the onions, and oh, it was great back there. It was so wonderful. Dude, you were getting whipped every day. You were in 100-degree weather. It was total torment. Not only that, their children were murdered in the Nile. You remember that? Remember they were going after Moses? They took their babies and they drowned them? And they're talking about the good old days back in Egypt. That's so totally what the enemy does to us. It makes us think back to our days, B.C., before Christ, right? And remember things with fond memories that really are garbage. And the consequences to them are not good. All we have here is manna. All we have is freedom, God's blessing, God's presence, the coolness of the cloud, God's direction, the land of promise before us. Man, and we used to get to party and chase women and drink, and it was great. Now I'm a Christian, gave all that up. Praise the Lord, amen? That stuff is, is garbage. That stuff doesn't bring you joy. That stuff doesn't satisfy. You know the Bible says your flesh will never be satisfied. We think if we feed it one more time, then it won't be hungry anymore. Isn't that the lie of the flesh? Just do it one more time. And then you won't have to do it again. Right? Just one more time. And then you do it one more time, then you've got to do it one more time. Right? 
And the reality is your flesh will never be satisfied. The way you put your flesh to death is not to feed it, it's to starve it. Amen? To flee youthful lust. Don't go anywhere near it. And so these guys are hearkening back to that time. And again, our memory is funny. We remember the party, but we forget the hangover. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but at the end it leads to destruction. Remember that sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Let me say that again. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Sin's not bad because God said it's bad. It's bad because it will harm us. God loves us. Do I not let my kids play on the freeway because I'm a no-fun bummer dad? No, you cannot play on the freeway. Oh, man, what a drag of a dad I have, right? I love my kids. Playing on the freeway is forbidden because I love my kids. You know what's really funny, too? When your kids found out that you were blowing it like when you were a teenager. Oh, so when you were a teenager, did you date? Well, well, yeah. Then how come I can't? Well, see, you had all your fun. So now, that's like saying, well, yeah, I used to play on the freeway. I got hit by a bus. You got hit by a bus. Why can't I? You know, that's the mentality. The mentality is, well, I got run over by a freight train. Well, so I, you, I should have that same chance. And God's given us these experiences so we might minister to others and say, don't, don't fall into that same trap I did. And they're looking back, and, and the joy, again, doesn't come from sex and drugs and rock and roll, the pursuit of money. It can only come from becoming a new creation in Christ. Look at verse 7 through 9. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its color was like the color of bedolum. It's like a yellowish-white color. The people went about and gathered it, and ground it in millstones, and beat it in a mortar, and cooked it in pans, and made cakes of it. And its taste was like pastry prepared with oil. Didn't that sound good? Pastry prepared with oil, and it was good for you. Verse 9. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna fell with it. So every night, God rained down manna. Now, manna is a type or a picture of what? It's a picture of Christ. Amen? He's the manna that's come down to heaven. He's the bread of life. It's also a picture of God's Word, because Jesus is the Word. Amen? And, and this manna was a source of strength. It was God's nourishment for them. It prepared them for the battle. It, and it, that's the same thing that God's Word does for us. But they didn't want manna. They instead wanted the food that the world had to offer. And how tragic it is, listen to me, how tragic it is when professed believers in churches crave substitutes from the world instead of desiring the heavenly manna of the Word of God. You know what? That's an epidemic in the church today. Trying to attract and please the mixed multitude, churches have have turned their sanctuaries into theaters, their ministries into performances, and their worship becomes entertainment. And the religious substitutes do not satisfy our fleshly desires. It satisfies our flesh, not our, our walk with God. And too often in the world today, we're trying to reach the mixed multitude and make everyone feel comfortable at church. So let's not talk about sin, and let's take the Bible out of there, because that intimidates people. And let's just have a, you know, a quick PowerPoint thing and a 12-minute service and a you know, rocking band and let's get them in and out and you know, maybe they'll give us some money and we can keep going. But that's not God's highest, amen? He says, feed them the Word. You know, when I prepare a message, there's three things. I got this from John Corson. There's three things I try to have in every message. Milk, meat, and manna. What is milk? Milk's the gospel, the milk of the Word. The meat, the deep truths of the Word of God, the deep things in the text. And what is the manna? The specific message for those people for that day. So when I teach a message, a chapter I've taught before, I start over. Because I want to teach you what God has for you today, not some message that God gave me nine years ago or four months ago. And so milk, meat, and manna, and that's what we need, is we need that fresh uh, feeding from God every single day. So lies our flesh tells us, you know better than God. It treats, begin, we begin to complain about our circumstances. Things of the world are better. We start complaining about God's provision. What God's given us isn't enough. 
God, you just don't take good enough care of me. If you're in this room and you have a place to sleep tonight, you're in the top 10% richest people in the world. I've been to India. Nobody in this room is poorer than anybody in India, okay? There may be a few people in India, but I, you know, the mass majority of people don't have a place to live. They don't have electricity. You got electric, how many people have electricity? Are they very, you're wealthy, okay? How many have food in your refrigerator, right? Okay, we're wealthy. And too often we want to complain because we don't think things are perfect. And we're comparing ourselves to the world. And we say, well, you know, so-and-so's got a huge house up on the hill and my house is little. You've got a place to live. You've got food to eat. God's blessed you. Amen? And so often we make the mistake of comparing ourselves to the world and complaining about God's provision. Now let's look at verses 10 through 15. Now Moses is finally going to get fed up. He's not going to be able to take it anymore. And this is the first of two times that Moses is going to sin because of the people. He's just going to be tired of them. You know, he already came down from the mountain with the, with the Ten Commandments, excited, having hung out with God. What were they doing? They were having an orgy. They were out of control, dancing around a golden calf, worshiping an idol. He wasn't happy, right? Now this time, he hears them complaining again and again and again. And look at verse 10. It says there, Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused, and Moses was also displeased. Can you imagine? There's three million people, and you're the pastor. And you go walking through the camp, and all you hear is people stand there and go, we don't have any meat. That's what they're doing. It says that every day, what does it say? Look at the text. Heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. Now, if it says everyone in the Bible, what does that mean? Everyone. Three million people. We don't have any meat. Whining and complaining. Man, I'm glad I'm not pastoring that church. How do you have three million whiners in your church? We don't have meat. Dude, we're, the Holy Spirit is above us. The clouds are above us. There's food falling out of the sky. We're going to the land of promise. And you're whining. And not just one whiner. Three million whiners. <laughs> Moses, I'm surprised he doesn't flip a switch more often than he does. But he's finally going to flip it, right? He's just going to go, you know what? I'm done. I, I can't take these people anymore. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant? Why, what, Lord, what did I do? Why are you whipping up on me? So Moses hears them complaining, so what does he start doing? He starts complaining, right? They're complaining about not having meat, so he starts complaining to God, what have you done to me? He's passing the buck up the line, right? They're complaining to him, so he starts complaining to God. Look at verse 11. Why have you afflicted your servant, and why have I found, not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Lord, why did you give me these people? I didn't ask for them. I told you back at the burning bush, you know, it's probably part of his conversation. Remember back at the burning bush, I told you I was a stutterer and I couldn't do it. Lord, you made me go, and I went, and I stuttered through the hall, and you got, you know, we got out. Now, I got him to, the, to Mount Sinai. Why don't we give someone else a try? I got him through the Red Sea. I got him out of the thing. I, you know, let's pass. Let's, you know, let's vote for a new pastor. I'm the interim. Let's get someone else in here. He was done. He starts complaining. Three million sniveling whiners. He couldn't take it anymore. You give me this huge burden. You know, few things di- discourage God's servants more than people criticizing them unjustly and complaining about God's blessings upon their lives. Few things, well, you want to discourage someone in ministry? Just go on and complain about everything all the time. Man, and this isn't right, and that's not right. And that. By the way, there's no perfect church on the planet, right? And if it was perfect, you'd ruin it when you got there. <laughs> right? Because you're a sinner. And as soon as you showed up, that would be the end of it. 
So there's no perfect church. So if you're, you know, we don't have perfect chairs here. If you haven't figured that out yet, right? These are good, though, because they keep you guys awake. It's kind of hard to fall asleep in those bad boys, right? So we see here that the people are murmuring and they're complaining, and Moses is bad about enough of it. Verse 12. Did I conceive all these people? Are these my kids? Did I have them? Why am I responsible? That's what he's saying. Look at verse 12. Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to your fathers? Are they my children that I've got to provide for them, that I have to carry them? Am I supposed to nurse these bunch of whiners? God, don't you care about me? Moses starts complaining. Isn't complaining contagious? Isn't it? One person starts whining at work, and what happens? The chorus chimes in. Right? I had an old boss when I was in sales that said, you know, you can't soar with the eagles if you hang out with a bunch of turkeys. And it's true, you know, you get one person complaining, ah, ah, and you know, the reality is, you just chime in or you got to walk away from it. And we see here that Moses, just three, three million people whining in unison, and he's all by himself, and he finally says, okay, I'm done. And he looks to the Lord and says, help me, get me out of this, I can't take it anymore. So the first problem is that, that, he, that Moses is struggling. Moses himself begins to complain, and he begins to complain and murmur. And now the second thing, the, second li- the next lie that the, that the enemy tells us, or our flesh tells us, is that God's problem is too big for you. The problem that you have, God couldn't possibly take care of. It's way too big. It's way too ominous. Look at verse 13 and 14. Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, give us this meat that we may eat. He says, where am I going to get food for three million people? I can't go down to Price Club. You know, I don't have enough room on my credit card. I mean, how am I going to get three million people full of meat? Where am I going to find that? Where's that barbecue going to take place? Now, look what happens in verse 14. It says, where am I going to get this meat? He says, am I able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me? I can't do it. Where am I going to get the meat for these people? This burden is way too heavy for me. I can't bear it. How am I going to feed them? It's impossible. How can I bear this burden? It's too heavy. Moses gets his eyes off of God. He puts his eyes on his circumstances, and he starts complaining. Can you complain when your eyes are on the Lord? If you look at the Lord and you realize, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that I'm born again. I didn't deserve it. I'm going to heaven. I'm a new creation in Christ. You love me so much, you'd rather die than live without me. You sent your Holy Spirit to live inside of me. You've given me the promise of heaven. You're preparing a mansion for me. How do I complain in the middle of that sentence? And what happens to Moses is he gets his eyes off of God and his eyes on his circumstances and he starts complaining. Look how heavy his complaints go. Look at verse 15. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. Is he done with these people? He says, you know what? If I'm going to be the pastor of this church, Lord, do me a favor and just smoke me. Just wipe me out and kill me because I can't take it anymore. rest of verse 15. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness, so kill me if I found favor in your sight. Lord, do me a favor, bless me please, and kill me. Moses' eyes are on his problem and he has no hope. And understand and remember this, the severity of any problem is nothing in comparison to the greatness of God. No matter how great your problem is, God's greater than that. Amen? Can He heal any on your deathbed? The doctor's giving you five minutes to live. Can God heal you? No matter how big a debt you've got facing you, can God take care of it? Can God heal any broken marriage? Can He, can he bring your children to the Lord? 
that are, that are far away from God. Can, he can do anything, amen? But what happens is we get our eyes off of God, we put our eyes on our circumstances, we get overwhelmed, we start complaining, we blow our testimony. And God desires that we keep our eyes on Him. Look at verse 16. Now watch here, I want you to see this, because we saw the lies our flesh tells us. You know, you could, you, you know better than God. Things of the world are better. God doesn't really care about you like Moses. Your problem is too big for God. There's no hope. But all results from looking again at the world through faithless eyes focused on the physical rather than faithful eyes focused on the Lord. Now watch this. God's going to provide for those desperate for Him and He's going to judge those who seek after the flesh. Look at verse 16. So Moses is saying, Lord, kill me. I can't take it. Now watch God's grace. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. I love this, that God shows him grace in the midst of his complaining. He's complaining and murmuring and he says, I can't do this by myself. And the Lord says, you know what? You're right. You can't do it without me. But you know what? God does it. Christianity is not for the lone ranger. Amen. Christianity isn't for you off by yourself somewhere trying to walk with God. God desires that we have fellowship. And at this point, Moses has got three million complainers. And God says, you know what? I'm going to raise up some guys, and I'm going to take the same spirit that's in you, and I'm going to put it on them. And they're going to hold up your hands, and you're not going to be alone in ministering to this group anymore. And I'm going to raise up these, these elders before you. The word elder means men of spiritual maturity. It says men, uh, uh, officers over them, men who serve as overseers of the people. Then he says, I'm going to pour out the same spirit upon them. Now this is where we get the precedence in Scripture for a plurality of like-minded men filled with the Holy Spirit, bearing the burden together of the same spirit, spiritual unanimity. They're unanimous together because they've got the Holy Spirit in common. Now that's the biblical model for the church. The biblical model for the church is that God raises up men, He anoints them with His Holy Spirit, and they're like-minded in their heart to serve the people. Pastor doesn't mean, you know, taskmaster. Amen? You don't serve me, I serve you. Pastor means servant. And the elders or pastors, by the way, I said this a couple weeks ago, elder, pastor, and bishop, all interchangeable. The world's tweaked that. You know, they have bishops up here, and then pastors down here, and elders down here. It's all the same. In the Bible, it's interchangeable. And so the elders, the pastors, the bit, whatever you want to call them, they're the people that are called by God, that are spiritually mature, that are supposed to minister to God's people, to serve them, to minister to the spiritual needs of the body. And you know what? At our church here, we have, we have five pastors or elders, whatever you want to call them. It's the same word. We have five pastors, five elders. We've talked to a few more guys, and maybe in a few weeks we'll have a few more. But here's the thing. We're here to serve you, to minister to you. They're here to hold me accountable. The Bible says in, in the Council of Many, there's safety, right? And so it's good to have those people. And that's what Moses needed, and God gathered these people around him. Look at verse 18. So we're going to see not only does God raise up elders, and, and He provides for the need that Moses has, but now He's also going to promise to provide the meat for those who cried out for it. Look at verse 18. Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it is well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat to eat. You shall eat meat, not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils. 
That's in the Bible. That's not me. Look what it says. And becomes loathsome to you because you've despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did you ever come up out of Egypt? So the Lord says, okay, you want meat? Here it comes. You know, one of the ways that God judges people is he gives them what they want. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful about what you murmur about. I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. Okay, there you go. Sometimes I teach my kids lessons that way. I'm not cold. I don't need my jacket at school. I'm not cold. And I, after a while, I go, okay. I know the forecast. It's going to be 38 degrees today. Okay. Go to school without your jacket. They're on the couch. The next day, you know what? You might want to take your... Yeah, Dad, I need my jacket, right? Sometimes you give them what they ask for so they might learn a lesson, right? These people are murmuring and complaining and they want it and I want it and I want it. I remember a, a pastor one time talking about this girl he was in love with in high school and he was devastated that God didn't let him marry her. And for years, he was totally bummed. Then he went back to his 25th reunion with his, with his on-fire godly wife. And at the reunion, this woman came in and she was loud and out of control and just brutal. And he was like, man, who's that? And they told him it was the woman he wanted to marry. And he was like, thank you, Jesus. You didn't give me what I asked for. You know, we need to pray, not my will be done, but your will be done, because God knows better than us what we need. Amen? And so here they're saying, give me the meat. And he says, okay, you want it? I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to give you so much of it, it's going to be coming out of your nose. Literally, you're going to be sick of it, and I'm going to give it to you. Why? Because God had told them that what they did with manna would be a picture of how they dealt with him. He had told them when he gave them manna that was a picture of his word. And he said, well, how you deal with that is how you deal with me. And if you say the manna is not good enough and you want the things of the world, fine, I'm going to give it to you. And you know what? Consequences are going to come with it. 21. And Moses said, The people who I'm among are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said I will give them meat that will eat for a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? He says, Okay, Lord, uh, you know, all right, you didn't kill me and you brought me some help, but now you want me to feed 3 million people? with enough food to feed him for 30 days of meat, where am I going to get that? How am I going to do that? And again, Moses is still starting to doubt the Lord. This is the same guy. Wasn't he there when the Red Sea parted? Right? That same guy who parted the Red Sea, can he give food to these people? He's been raining manna from the sky. Couldn't he rain meat if he wanted to? Of course he could. Look at the next verse. And the Lord said to Moses, Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I, what I say will happen to you or not. Has the Lord, do you think I can't do it? That's what God says to him. Moses, how long have you known me? You don't think I can feed these people? And sometimes we pray to God that way and we question him. And he says to Moses, watch and see. And he doesn't tell him how he's going to do it. And often that's how God answers our prayer. He doesn't give you all the details step by step. He just says, watch and see. I'm going to do it. We're almost done. Verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the Spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the Spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did do so again. So he brought them around the tabernacle. They surrounded the tabernacle, the place where God's glory dwelt. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and these 70 guys were speaking, prophesying the wonderful works of God. They may have even been singing worship songs. But the wonderful works of God were coming out of their mouth. And Moses and all these guys had that in common. So God blessed Moses and he provided that promise that he had given to him. Verse 26. But two men remained in the camp. And the name of one was Eldad and the name of the other was Medad. 
And the Spirit rested upon them. And they were among those listed, but who had gone, not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, saying, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. So these guys who were listed, and notice it says in the text that Moses went out and chose these 70 guys. No doubt he prayed, he sought the Lord, and he went out and picked them out. But who's the one that put the spirit upon them? God did, right? So he chose them, but God was the one who had called them initially. Moses just being obedient to what God's called him to do. Moses sees in them what God, God's calling upon them. He calls them, Holy Spirit comes upon them. Well, these two guys, for whatever reason, we don't know why, didn't show up at the tabernacle. But because they were chosen by God, and they were, they were on the list that Moses had compiled, even though they didn't come to the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They started prophesying out in the camp. Now Joshua goes out there, and you know, Joshua's a pretty awesome guy, and he sees these guys prophesying, and he goes, hey, wait a minute. You didn't show up at the meeting, man. You can't be prophesying out here. And he runs back to Moses, you've got to tell those guys to be quiet. They're out there praising God, and you didn't tell them it was okay. And Moses, what does Moses say? Hey, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets. You know, we need to be careful that we don't look out and say, hey, if they're not of our church, then they're not of God. There's only one church, amen? We're all a part of it. And it doesn't matter which raft people get in, life boat they get in, as long as they get to shore. And too often we look out and we've got an us versus them mentality. And Joshua's like, well, these guys weren't at the meeting, so they shouldn't be, be able to go out there and do that. And he's saying, look, the Holy Spirit is the one that fell upon them. I didn't do that. And if the Holy Spirit's upon them, then we, the last thing we want to do is get in the way of that. What does that remind you of? You remember Jesus and John came to him? And he said to him, two guys are out there casting out demons in your name. You know, should I go shut them down? What should I do? And the Lord said, hey, if they're not, if he, those who are not against us are for us. Amen? If they're out there preaching the gospel, then keep it up. And we should be encouraged that others are sharing their faith. We should be encouraged when we hear another church in town, God's doing great things. We should be blessed. It's not a competition. Amen? We're on the same team. We all want to see people come to know Christ. We want to see revival in Santa Cruz County. Lastly, we're going to see not only that God blesses those who seek His provision or are desperate for Him, but God also brings judgment upon those who desire to be fed by the flesh. Look at verse 31. Last few verses. Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, left from the fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on that side, about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits above the surface of the ground. So Moses had said, Lord, is it, are you, you want me to kill all the, the animals we have that were supposed to take in the land of promise? Do you want me to go and try to fish all the sea out of the sea? Is it herds or fish? How are we going to feed these people? It was quail. Isn't it interesting? We go to God and we give God multiple choice. God, are you going to do this, or are you going to do this? And God's going, neither one of those things. Do you know that before I came to Northern California, and I had in my notes back here in Numbers chapter, Numbers chapter 9, where the cloud is moving. My wife and I were praying because we knew God was sending us out to start a church. And I wrote, Lord, help me to be obedient to follow the moving of the cloud, the leading of your Holy Spirit. Here I am, Lord, send me, 8296. And here are the three choices. New York, Texas, or Idaho. I was talking to people in New York, Texas, and Idaho about going out to start a church, and I thought, okay, Lord, it's got to be one of those three. So I wrote, Lord, lead me wherever you want me to go, New York, Texas, or Idaho. 
Is it herds or is it fish? It's quail. Is it Texas? Is it New York? Is it Idaho? It's Santa Cruz. God knows better than we do, amen? We don't give God multiple choice. Is it that girl or that girl? Neither one, amen? Wait for the one that God has for you, verse 32. It says in verse 32, And the people stayed up all that night, day and night, and then all the next day, and gathered the quail who gathered at least, gathered ten homers, and they spread them out themselves all over the camp. You know, they were three feet high off the ground. Now, there's some uh, dispute what that means. Some people believe that means that there were quail stacked three feet high for a day's journey in every direction that were already dead. Others believe that it says because they're fluttering in verse 31 that they literally were bound just to fly three feet above the ground. They couldn't get away and they just went around and, you know, hit them with sticks and put them in a bag. And it's funny because one of the, pa- it was Corson again, he's good at this stuff. He goes, I think they were using bats. You know why I think they were using bats? Because it said the least of them got ten homers. <laughs> That's Corson. That's what it says. The least of them got 10 homers. Now, 10 homers would be about 60 bushels. 60 bushels is roughly like two, you know those big buckets of chicken? Kentucky, like 200 buckets full. So the guy who got the least amount of quail had 200 buckets full of quail. These guys had, is that a month's full worth? Even on a football team, that's a month's worth, right? So they're bringing all this quail back. Look at verse 33. But while the meat was still between their teeth, Before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So so he called the name of the place Kerbeth Hatava, because they they buried the people who had yielded to craving. So what happened to these people that gathered up the meat and started eating it? They died. I'm not thinking they buried alive people. So these guys were craving after meat. They said, that's what I want. That's what I miss. The Lord said, fine, that's what you want. I'll let you have it. Sometimes God's greatest judgment is he gives people what they want. They go after it. They finally gather it all up. They're sitting down, you know, no doubt salivating, 200 buckets of quail, ready to scarf. And the first piece gets in their mouth, and before they chew it, they drop dead. Why? Because the flesh and the ways of the flesh produces death, not joy. The Bible says in Psalm 106, the Lord gave them their request and sent leanness into their souls. Feeding the flesh brings leanness to your soul. The word there, Kerbeth Hatava, means graves of lust. So that place was named graves of lust. People that lust after the things of the world, this is where they end up. The Lord, the, the Lord warned Israel that the way they treated the daily manna again would be a test of their obedience to His word. And by rejecting the manna and pursuing the things of the flesh, they said, we don't need God anymore. This judgment reminds us of the way, again, that you and I must treat God's Word. We can ignore it, we can treat it carelessly, we can willfully disobey it, but when we do, there will be judgment that will follow. We think we know what God's best is for us, but only God knows. You know, the Bible says that I will withhold no good thing from those who love me. So if you don't have it right now, it's because it's not good for you. You hear what I just said? If you don't have it right now, it's because it's not good for you. Can I tell you something else? If you're not content right this minute, there's no worldly thing you can add to your life to make you content. We think, if I just had a bigger house, if I just got that promotion at work, if I just met the right guy, if I just met the right girl, if we just had one more child, if I just got the... And we think there's one more thing that will make you content. The Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen? Our contentment comes from Him. When we're in love with Jesus, we don't need anything else. 
to be content. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness. So in conclusion, we see rebellion in the camp. It turns an 11-day journey to the land of promise into a 40-year death march. The lies our flesh tells us. You know better than God. And it makes you start complaining about your circumstances. The things of the world are better. And we start complaining about God's provision. God doesn't care about you. How much does God care about you? Right here. Amen? How valuable are you to God? Value of something is determined by what somebody's willing to pay for it. He loved you so much that He let His Son die that you might have eternal life. That's how much God loves you. And that's how valuable you are to Him. Your problem is too big for God. There's no hope. And then we saw God's provision for those desperate for Him in bringing 70 elders to Moses and God's judgment upon those who are driven by fleshly desire. We saw that God gave them what they asked for. You know what? In closing, nobody will be separated from God except they choose to be. And I know there's some people here that are going to disagree with me, and that's okay, because I know who our God is, and I know what the Bible teaches. Let me tell you right now, that God's desire is none should perish, no, not one. Does the Bible say that? The Bible says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not His Son to the world that the world would be condemned, but that the world through Him would be saved. Jesus came that you might have life, and He loves you. Amen? But what happens is, salvation is offered universally, but it's accepted individually. And the people that are separated from God for all eternity are the ones that say, no, I don't want it, Lord. No, I don't want it. No, I don't want it. No, I don't want it. I got my own way. I got my own path. I don't need what you have for me. I'm going to serve my flesh. I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to pursue it. And you say, no, God, no, God, no, God, no, God, no, God, until finally he gives you what you've asked for. He gives you what you want. You say no to the cross enough, he's finally going to say, okay, I'm going to give you what you've asked for. People say it's not fair that some should spend eternity separated from God. It's not fair that any of us should spend eternity with God. Amen? Do we deserve heaven? Do we deserve heaven? No. But He gives it to us anyway. It's grace. Amen? It's by grace we've been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again that You're a loving and a gracious and a merciful God. We thank You, Lord, that in the midst of our difficulty, that when we keep our eyes on You, Lord, it's so easy to have joy no matter what's going on around us. We thank you that our happiness and our joy doesn't come from our circumstances. But Lord, happiness and joy comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit and walking with you. Father, I thank you for every person who's here. I pray if there's any going through difficulty right now, that Lord, that they wouldn't be tempted to take their eyes off of you. Lord, they would pursue you with their whole heart. They would wake up in the morning looking up. Lord, that they would listen for that still, small voice. They'd be led by your Spirit. They would spend time in your Word. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to encourage one another. Lord, I also pray for each one of us that, Lord, you would help us not to complain about anything. Lord, help us to be rejoicing, not complaining. Help us, Lord, to be a Christ-like example to the world around us when things are difficult because we know that you're in control and you're faithful and you're a great and an awesome God. Lord, with the heaven before us, our sin paid for behind us, Lord, how can we not rejoice? How can we not praise you? Lord, we love you and we praise you. You're such a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stand and close the worship song.